Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, Yes, I am Nick. I am the youth pastor. Joke, joke, joke. Let's do this. Um, So I... uh, I got a, um, I had a weird moment as I was coming out. I, I had some coffee, I was drinking it, and I had to remind myself to leave it in there. Um, because, and by the way, this is a free story. It has nothing to do with anything. I just wanted to tell it. Um, I had to remind myself to leave my coffee in there because the first time I ever preached in a Methodist church, I brought my coffee out with me and placed it on this random table behind me. And that random table happened to be something called the altar, And they took that thing very seriously, and nothing I said mattered because I had destroyed the 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 altar by placing my coffee on it and repeatedly picking it up and drinking from it. And so everything I said, they didn't care. Um, Just thought I'd share that with you. That's that's why I don't have any coffee because I might ruin everything. Um, I got a text from my college roommate the other day. His name was Philip, and he revealed some both sad. And, and, and funny news, and it's going to sound mostly sad, but I'll explain why it's funny. Um, one of my college professors had passed away, um, and the reason it's funny is because it happened like five years ago and we didn't know. Uh, maybe, maybe it's both sad. No, I guess it is both sad. Um, so, yeah, man, this was one of my favorite people. His name was uh, Master Zeman is what we called him. Um, he'd been there forever. In fact, my mom had actually had him when she went there uh, she had him as a professor, and I think he looked exactly the same. I can't confirm that. Um, but he was just one of those guys who was fun and jovial, even though he like sat down most of the time while he taught because he was pretty old. He was just like, he had so much life and energy, and he was hilarious. And um, we, me and my, my friend Philip, we obsessed over him. We loved this guy. We called him Master Zeman because he didn't have his doctorate, but he was a college professor, and we felt that value, that was pretty important. So we gave him the moniker Master Zeman. Uh, and other people used it, and it was awesome. Um, one time, we liked this guy so much. One time, we, we really wanted him to come as our guest of honor to this, like, dorm party we were throwing. I don't know why we wanted him to come, other than it would be hilarious. And so he kept saying no. And so we finally just bit the bullet, and we decided to go all out. And we got T-shirts made with his face on them. Um, just his face, no words, just big giant face from here to there, Master Zeman's face, and we got a giant cake made, it was probably about that big, with his name on it, uh, or with his face on it, much funnier, and uh, when we revealed this to him, he finally did show up, which was probably really mean of us to ask this 70 plus year old man to show up at 9 o'clock in the evening to a stupid freshman college dorm party that he stayed at for like 10 minutes, but it was pretty epic, not going to lie. We loved Master Zeman. Master Zeman taught some of my favorite classes. He taught intro to literature, which was crazy, easy, and fun, and enjoyable. Um, But he also taught some of the hardest classes I ever took, and they were advanced Greek. Master Zeman could quote the Bible in Greek. Like, he knew the whole thing. He had it down pat. Um, And we took, me and Philip, we took advanced Greek from him 
for four semesters, and we obsessed hard over this class. We got really, really, really into it. Um, We were constantly talking about it. We studied harder for this class than any other, mostly because you kind of had to, because learning Greek is kind of like learning how to speak with a brand new set of letters and words, because that's exactly what it is. It doesn't follow any of the rules of our language. In fact, it made up most of the rules that it had. All new letters, all new syntax, everything was different. It was hard. But Master Zeman was, in fact, a master, and he taught us very well. And we, you know, our final project in that class after the fourth semester was to translate an entire epistle in in the New Testament. Like, one of the epistles, I chose the shortest one I could find and translated it, the entire thing from start to finish, um, without like you know searching what is this like we had to read it in Greek and write it in English uh, and it was difficult it was tough um, but man we geeked out hard on that class we would even try and like have conversations in Greek but you know ancient Greek is very different from normal conversational Greek so it mostly just sounded like us quoting scripture to each other um, and so man I love that class but you know the other day I looked at my Greek New Testament and. I I refrained from using this joke in the last service, but I'll just lean into it. It was all Greek to me. (laughs) That felt cheap. I don't, I don't, I don't feel good about that. No, it was awful. Like it was, it was embarrassing and I was alone. Like I had obsessed over this language and I opened that text and I couldn't figure out anything. Like if you'd asked me now to like repeat the Greek alphabet, I think I could maybe do like the fraternity letters that I remember, but that's all I got. Like I don't remember. I have lost it. It's gone. It has escaped my mind. It has burrowed out and left. I don't remember any of these things that the great Master Zeman taught me. I don't remember. It's gone. Um, And it's really frustrating because how could something that I spent so much time on and so much energy with, like, how can it just be gone? That's crazy. It's not fair. It's not, it should stick there. It should, it should be lodged in there. I spent a lot of time, and, it, and it, now it feels like it was a waste, and that's not, that's not great. I want it back, but I, 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 it's gone. I don't know. I can't get it back. Maybe if I, like, obsessed over it again, I could maybe, re, it would be easier to learn it this time. I don't know, but, like, the thing is, as Master Zeman told us all the time, if you don't keep this up, you're going to lose it, and he was right, because I definitely did not keep it up. Because as I became a youth pastor, I found less and less reason to know Greek. Um, you might, this was just sh- probably shocking to most of you. Um, but I just couldn't find any reason to keep it going, and so I lost it. It's gone. And this kind of leads me to my question for the day. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and this is kind of the end of this series on the book of Colossians. Um, and as I read this text, I thought of this situation that I'm in because it brings to mind these questions. This is kind of a two-part question. How do we live into what we already know and who we already are? How do we do that? We know the things, that are things locked in our minds. How do we actually live into that? You know, as a youth pastor and even just a human, I've heard this story a lot of times from people um, like they, they're like 19, 20 and they say, uh, you know, I heard, I heard the Bible preached all the time, but I never really understood the gospel or I never heard the gospel or the gospel was never preached to me. And now I get it. And I like that. It's, it's nice. It's, it's a sweet thing to say, but, but here's the thing. If you did grow up in church, you heard the gospel. It was told to you. I promise. Unless you went to some weird non-gospel church, which is a possibility. You heard it. It was told to you. 
It was preached to you. You've heard it in Bible studies. You heard people explicitly say things like Jesus died for your sins. Like you heard that. It just didn't lock in or you didn't put it into action. And then then finally something happened where boom, it took place. And now you're like on fire for it. And that's amazing. But you did hear it. And in the same way that I don't remember every single meal that I ever ate, they nourished me and kept me alive to the point that I'm at. Like we've been told these things. There are things about us that are true that we don't realize. And what Paul's going to do is illuminate those things. And I want us to figure out how do we take what Paul's going to tell us here, really remind us here, and put it into practice and live into it. That's what we're going to talk about. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is what's called a bridge text. In the book of Colossians, and I know Charlie's talked a lot about this, so I'm going to be real brief. In the book of Colossians, Paul is writing a letter to a group of people in a city he's never been to that have kind of lost focus on what the faith is about. They've started to believe in like angel worship, and they're starting to debate whether or not Christ's resurrection and death is, is valuable enough, or is it sufficient enough to, to bring us into salvation. And, and what Paul does is say, yes, it is, and here's why. For the first two chapters, he lays out over and over again and makes the same points over and over again that Christ is sufficient. He is everything. He is all you need. And now, in this beginning of this chapter 3, he's bridging from what he's told them and proved to them to how to live that out and what that means now. So because Christ is sufficient, here's what we do now. And this is the bridge that gets us there. And that, this text, my friends, this text is rich. It's thick. It's condensed. It is not one that you just sort of glaze over and read quickly. This is one that needs some time. It needs some time to marinate and really think about everything that Paul is saying about us here. So we're going to start at the top. At really, the most, I don't know, life-changing fact, and it's this. You are raised with Christ. I'm going to say it again. You are raised with Christ. Now see, Paul, what he's not saying here is he's not saying some of you are raised with Christ. See, he's, he's writing this letter to a group of people who are arguing about things like angel worship and whether or not Christ exists. And he doesn't say, those of you who do this or those of you who think this way. He just blatantly says, you are raised with Christ. All of these things he just taught, Christ is sufficient, Christ is sufficient. If you believe that, Paul says, you are raised with Christ. Now, you probably don't feel like that's true. You probably don't feel like one who has been resurrected with our Lord and Savior, the instrument of creation. Maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe, maybe you think Paul is actually just saying since some of you, or maybe you think he's saying since a lot of you, or maybe you think he's saying since all of you, except that one row in the back, you know who you are. He is saying since you have been. Notice the language. He's saying something very specific, and it has a past act. You have been. It is a past act with present and continuous consequences. 
okay, well, hold on. Maybe he's just talking to the people at Colossae. Because that happens a lot in the scriptures. Like, not everything that's said in here is meant for the entire world. Sometimes it's just meant for specific people in a specific place. So maybe that's what this is. So maybe we're off the hook. Maybe we're not raised with Christ. That'd be cool, except for the fact that Paul uses this same phrase over and over again to different people groups and everybody he writes with. In some point, in some way, he will mention this. In, in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, he says, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive, same words in the Greek, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. He fleshes out this same idea over and over again in Galatians 2.20, Romans 6.4, 2 Corinthians 5, and many, many, many more. He says, you're raised with Christ. It is a reality, a truth. Not something that has started and is waiting to be finished, but it is a completed act. You have been raised with Christ. This is who we really are. Not because of what I've done, but because of what God has done for me. Friends, we really died with Jesus. We really rose with him, and he really lives in us. So every day we face the choice, will we try to live the Christian life on my own? Or will I live it in the power of God that exists within me? Will I live into what is true about me, or will I just live for me? These are questions and, and choices that we face moment by moment every day. Because, friends, he alone justifies. He alone makes us righteous. He alone gives us right standing before God. And as we've heard, nobody comes to the Father except through me, says Jesus. The gospel summons us to enter into the death and resurrection of Jesus, into the death in order to die to our sins, and into the resurrection in order to walk in new creation life. We are summoned to enter into what has already happened. One of our favorite writers here on, this, on staff, James Brian Smith, he said this, he said, he did not die merely to get me into heaven, but to get heaven into me. So what are you facing today? What are, what are your troubles? What is, what is bringing you down? Is it financial problems? Is it trouble in school? Is it the loss of something? Maybe a person, a relationship, a job, maybe a dream has been lost? Believe it or not, the resurrection of Jesus is your answer. And we should all take time to meditate on this idea that he did that. He did it. It's accomplished. It's over. It's done. You have been raised with Christ. We should all take time to recognize that Jesus broke through the thick veil of death that has plagued mankind since the day we were evicted from the garden. He did it, and then he brought us with him. Because we died with him, and we are raised with him. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. And now what's next? Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds. Seek and set. Seek and set. Two very different action-oriented verbs that we need to take a look at. Because since we've been raised with Christ, we must seek and we must set. 
You know, I came to a realization over this weekend while I was thinking through this that my favorite stories, movies, Bibles, books, not Bible, sorry, movies, books, sorry, I got Bible on the brain, I'm a very holy person. Movies, books, and things like that, my favorite stories are ones where the characters obsessively seek out something that they desire. Like, to the point where it makes no sense anymore, and and it's probably lost the value that it had in the beginning, but they just have to have it. They have to get it. You know, when I was, when I was young, I, I read this book, oh, 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 no, about 20 times. Um, and this is, the, this is The Hobbit. It's the cover art that I had as a kid. Did anyone else have this when they were reading it? You may have this particular version. I had one in the first service, and I really like that person. No? So, yeah, this was the fat Bilbo that I grew up with, right? And then I saw the movie, and I was like, oh, he's attractive. I didn't know. Cool. Good for him. Um, and doesn't Gollum just look really, really, really weird in that one? Like with the crook nose? I like it. I love this book. I was obsessed with it because this whole idea that these, and I, you know, I'm nerdy. What are you going to do about it? These dwarves like obsessively seeking their homeland, this, this home that they had in the Lonely Mountain and this Arkenstone that Thorin really wanted. I, I can go on for hours. I'm going to stop. Um, man, they wanted it so obsessively that it made no sense to everyone else. Everyone who saw them doing this, everyone who heard what they're doing said, you're crazy, you shouldn't do this, it's not worth it. And they didn't care and they just barreled right through all that criticism because what they wanted was the most valuable thing in the world to them. I love that kind of story. And one of my favorite movies is probably one that you've maybe never heard of, maybe you had. It's called The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. It's about this guy whose best friend is eaten by a mythical creature called the Jaguar Shark. And he spends the whole, you know, 90 plus minutes of the movie convincing his friends and us, the audience, to go along with him to find this thing that we've never seen before, never heard of before. And it's, it's rapturous. Like, I get really into it. Plus, it's hilarious, and it's fun, and it's exciting, and I just love the idea of, like, this obsessive seeking and searching for something that, against everyone's advice, they just can't stop doing. I love the movie Saving Private Ryan, because they're forced to go and seek this thing out that they don't even want, and they still do it. Uh, All the Indiana Jones movies are basically about this, seeking and looking for something. I love the idea of seeking and searching something with all all of my being. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Seek and set. Seek. Seek is this word that means, in this, in this text, to desire, to want. Some, some translators use the phrase, set your hearts, instead of saying the word seek. I like seek because I think it, it makes more sense to me. To truly seek with your passion and your feelings and your emotions and your desires to want something so badly that you can't stop looking for it. Seek the things that are above. Set your minds, that's one word in in the Greek, set your minds is to focus your attention. So if, if seek means to use your heart to find what you want, set means to put your mind to work. Use all of your intellect and your knowledge and your wisdom to find this thing. Seek and to set. And when Paul talks about what is above, he very quickly says, where Christ is, so that we're not confused. We're not talking about seek the the clouds or the stars or the sun. Like He is saying very clearly, seek the place where Christ is. Seek him. Seek him. 
Our pursuit, our goal is Christ. That is why Paul spends the entire first two chapters of Colossians proving and arguing that Christ is sufficient so that when he says, set your mind on and to seek, when we hear this, we know Christ is what we should seek. Because Christ is supreme. His quality does not diminish. Anything on this earth, anything on this earth, no matter how beautiful and wonderful and and rich and complex it seems, if you delve too deeply into it, you'll find the cracks and the plot holes and the mistakes and the errors. No diamond, no matter how perfect they say it is, is completely flawless. There's always something. You just need a more powerful microscope. There's always something. No home is perfect. I just bought and built, it had a brand new house built and I'm living in it. And the other day I saw a crack in a corner of the wall and I was like, this is ridiculous. It's been three months. It's brand new, brand new. And it's already diminishing because that's what things on this earth do. But Jesus is not like this. The deeper and deeper you dive, the more quality and the more richness and the more it just everything just pours out and it's beautiful there's one more thing on this earth that you might think is perfect but it's not and it's the show friends it's not perfect friends it's great and it's wonderful and it's life-giving and it's something to have on in the background when you're doing other things but it's great however there's some mistakes there are some plot holes and i'm going to reveal some of them to you now and i know this might shake your very core in foundation, but there are problems, and I'm going to show them to you. Um, in season, where is it? Season five. In the season five finale, our good friends Ross and Rachel have ink all over their face because Ross did a prank on Rachel, drew on her face on the airplane. When they got there, she didn't realize it was embarrassed, and then he really wanted to go out and hang out, and she's like, the only way I'm going out is if you draw on your face. So they did, and they're both have inked up faces, and it's hilarious, and blah, blah, blah. And then they get married at the end of the season, and, then the, and the show ends, and we wait till season six. However, this was a dark time when people had to, like, watch shows and then wait for them to come out at the end, the beginning of the night. It was a dark, dark time. Now we can just click next episode. And if you're really lazy, you don't have to click anything. It'll just go right there for you. It's awesome. In the next episode, we see this. It's gone. There's no more ink. It was permanent. They were on the phone. It was a huge plot point. It's not coming off. It's not coming off. And then all of a sudden they sleep and it's just gone. Plot hole. Bad. Bothers me. Then there's season seven. Our good friend Ross claims to hate ice cream. It's something he says is like really secret and he hates it about himself, but it's true. It's too cold, he says. But then he's eating ice cream. Plot hole. Problem. I could go on, but I won't. You see, and this is again another earth shattering statement, but I'll say it Jesus is better than friends. He is. His quality does not diminish. There is no plot hole in Christ, there is no, you know, mistake. He is supreme, He is perfect. And the deeper we dive into Him, the more we seek and set with Christ the better, the more beautiful, the more complex he becomes. You know, I don't want a God that I can figure out. I don't want that. And Christ is that for me. I can't figure him out. Every time I think I've got a better handle, I I see some new element that I didn't get and I don't understand and I have to seek and I have to set and I have to keep going and looking and looking. And in our seeking of Christ, in the process of this and setting our minds on things above, we find 
wonderful things. We find unconditional love. We find justification. We find spiritual gifts that we can use to build up the church and so very much more. We seek Christ and set our mind on him because he deserves it. Because we are raised with him. Because he has done everything for us. And through the searching and focus on him, we find ourselves changed. Made new. You know, I, I know many people, and I've, I've lived this way too before. I know many people that are under the assumption that they can believe in Christ and have that not affect their daily life. And here's the silly thing about it is it's actually true. You can. You can do that. In the same way that I can buy a brand new Lamborghini, put it in my garage, and use it for storage. I can do that. It's an option. I, I can do that. Or I can create an elaborate heist plan and go steal the Mona Lisa and scrape off all the paint and use it for a canvas. I can do that if I want. It's my option. Or, like me, you can go to Puerto Rico for your honeymoon, this beautiful, wonderful place with lovely people and these rich, wonderful, like, robust restaurants uh, and all this wonderful culture you can experience. And like me, you can go there on your honeymoon and end up at Chili's for dinner. I definitely did that. I'm, I'm embarrassed. I, I don't know what we were thinking. Uh, we went, and I, I got to be honest, it was literally the worst Chili's I've ever been to. And it should have been. It should just be a trap to, to hook in dumb tourists and lock them in and say, you don't deserve to be here. You have to stay here and eat cold skillet queso while you're the rest of your time. And I would have accepted that punishment because it was dumb. Should not have done that. We have been raised with Christ. And instead of living into that life-changing fact, oftentimes we opt for the way things used to be. We opt for the things that are familiar because that new life is a little scary. The future is unclear. We look at the stories of the disciples who lived into this and their stories did not end peacefully in their beds with their families surrounding them. And I think that makes us nervous. I think we get scared and wonder, maybe there's a way I can live for Christ without having to go all the way into it. Maybe there's a way that God can change me just a little bit so that I'm nice to people around me, but I'm not like obsessed with this whole Jesus thing. It's probably the safe play, to be honest. But here's the problem. Someone who has been raised with Christ and lives into that reality cannot go back to the way things were. We can't go back. We're that, that person is dead. That person is gone. Christ has given us a brand new life. You are an eternal image bearer who has access to limitless love, limitless grace, and limitless power. One of my favorite authors, Scott McKnight, talks about it like this. He says, for Paul, it's like this. How one thinks shapes how one lives. Thus, flesh-mindedness leads to flesh-living, while spirit-mindedness leads to spirit-drenched living. That which we seek and that which we set our minds on will kind of become who we are. You know, Jesus obviously should be what we seek and set our hearts and minds on, but why we do it is also extremely important. Why we do it matters. Because there are times that we're guilty of using Christ to get things that we want. 
That we go to him in, in, in anticipation that he will give us the things that we want if we just pray. There are times that we think that if we go to church and we're good Christians, that he will make sure that we're blessed and taken care of. Here's the thing. Sometimes that kind of works. But man, is that, is that the poor version of the gospel? Because if we are going for Christ because he'll give us what we want, we're missing something. You know, I love my kids, and I love the way they pray, because um, it's so innocent and raw, and nobody's like taught them, here's how you pray. And I specifically don't. I just want them to, I want to hear what it sounds like. I'll just say, all right, guys, let's pray. And you know, they've heard me pray, and they've heard other people pray, so they'll just say things that are you know, not how people normally pray, but it's cute and it's beautiful. But, you know, at the end, they all do this thing where they all say, and God, please give me a horse, amen. Like, they always end it with some huge request where, and that's my daughter Kate, she'll say, God, please give me a horse. And sometimes she'll modify it and she'll go even bolder and say, and God, please give me a horse farm, amen. Like, she'll just up the ante and go crazy with it. Uh, and then my other daughter, Harper, she'll just ask for things that she sees, but like a better version of it. So if we'll be in her room praying, she'll look around and say, God, give me a better dollhouse. Uh, and God, make my bed bigger. Like, she'll ask for little things like that. And then my son usually just copies whatever the other person says. But also sometimes he'll say things like, God, give me a motorcycle. God, give me a Durant dinosaur. Like, he'll ask me, he'll ask God for those things. And it's cute and it's funny, but it's heretical and wrong. No, I love it. It's cute. But, but seriously, like, we don't seek Christ because he will give us what we want. We seek Christ because he is what we want. He is what we want. He is the object of our desire. Because our old selves, the ones that need so many things on this earth, the old ones bent on self-preservation and self-glorification, those people are dead and gone. And we are raised with Christ, alive in him, and as Paul goes on to say, hidden in him. It's another one of those that you can't just gloss over. You've got to look and see what that means. What does it mean when Paul says, we are hidden with Christ? You see, we all walk through life. Well, maybe that's an overgeneralization. I, personally, walk through life asking kind of two main questions. Like, am I significant and am I safe? So when I go to a new place... When I go to like a party or I go to a group of friends or I just go to a Starbucks, I'm wondering two questions sort of subconsciously. Is it okay that I'm here? And is it safe? So for example, if you walked into this place and a group of people started pointing at you and saying all the things about you that you don't like, targeting your, your insecurities and saying things about you that are just kind of mean, you would probably feel like you are not valued here and you're not wanted here. And then at the same time, if you saw a pack of wildebeest uh, running through the room chasing something, you might think, this isn't safe, I should leave. It's never happened, but you never know. Wildebeest are wily like that. We want to know that we're valued, and we want to know that everything's going to be okay. When Paul says you are hidden with Christ, he is saying something more significant than it sounds. Because you have died. And you have been raised with Christ. You are more significant than you realize and far safer than you know. Your life is tucked away and hidden with he who created the world. What could you possibly have to fear? What could you, what can take that away? Is there someone more powerful than God that can take that out? That can reveal what God has hidden? Is there someone that can steal that from you? No. No. You are hidden 
with Christ. You are safe and you are valuable. You know, the New Testament never speaks of eternal life as something that begins at death. Like it's this new thing that we enter into after we die that suddenly ushers us into this new reality and that's just not from the Bible. On the contrary, actually, the New Testament speaks of eternal life as something that begins here and now on this side of the grave, something that exists as a present possession of those who are in fellowship with God. True life, eternal life, the life that we were designed to possess is a gift from Jesus for this life, not merely the next. And that fact alone is missed by so many of us. And as a consequence, we can miss out on the richness of life here on earth because we're afraid of stuff. Stuff that can't harm you, stuff that can't take that from you. So if there is a co-crucifixion, if we are dead, if, we, if our old lives are gone, and in fact we have had a co-resurrection where we are raised with Christ, then there is also, and this is really beautiful, there is also a co-glorification. I'm not talking about equality with God, obviously. But there is this perfect balance here in this passage between the, the already and the not yet. Those who have been crucified and raised with Christ are already part of the kingdom of God. We are already living in an eternal life, hidden with Christ. But the old age is not yet finished. So until we die or this old age ends and the Lord appears again, our new life with all its resplendence and perfection will be a secret truth hidden in Christ. So as we wait and hope in the coming of the Lord, we also wait for the full revelation of who we already are. In this passage, Paul says, you also will be revealed in glory. No matter what is going on, family falling apart, addictions that we can't seem to break, loss, heartbreak, we have to remember that we've already won. And all of these present troubles will one day fade away and God's glory will be revealed in Christ and in us. You see, in this, in this day when Paul wrote this, he was seen as a prisoner, an eccentric Jew to the Romans. That's how they saw him. It's this crazy eccentric Jew who's in prison. And his own people saw him as a worse than Gentile traitor. And even for himself, he saw himself as the chief of sinners. But when he is revealed in glory, all of that's gone. He will be seen as Paul, the apostle, the servant of the king, a new creation, no longer hidden, but revealed in Christ. And the Colossians, the one he writes this letter to, they were insignificant ex-pagans from a third-rate has-been country town, easily forgotten. But when they will be seen in glory, it will be so magnificent that if it were to happen now, we would be tempted to worship it. It will be so beautiful and glorified. And what about us? What about you? I want to read to you, read over you, one of my favorite passages from Isaiah, where it talks about how God will, is already seeing us. It says, You will be called by a new name, that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor, in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand 
of your God. You shall no longer, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, don't miss this last phrase, so shall your God rejoice over you. I don't know if you've ever rejoiced over something. I don't know if you've ever seen or experienced something so beautiful that you can't help but just rejoice because it's there. Just looking at it, taking in all of its beauty and all of its complexity and all of its wonder, you just can't help but, but rejoice. Get excited. Say something that you didn't plan to say. Get just happiness just beams from you because of this thing. You know, this isn't even close to what I think what God does for us. But, you know, when I, when I was getting married and my wife opened the, the door open and she began to walk, I, I just kind of jumped. Like, I was so excited. Like, just the, the air felt lighter to me. I was just so full of joy and happiness and peace in that moment that I rejoiced over this wonderful woman coming down to spend the rest of her life with me. And people, this is what God does for us. When he sees you, when he sees you and your, all the choices that you make and all the things that you think about and all the things that you do and say, when he sees that, he sees someone who is raised with Christ, dead to your transgressions, made alive through the work of his son, and he rejoices over you. On the day when Jesus does take us in his arms, our life will be celebrated. There, there won't be this moment where God's like, all right, let's get to it, man. Let's talk about all the stuff that you did. Let's, let's start with, you know, that one thing. Let's start with that. Let's, let's really, why'd you do that, man? Why'd you do that? Well, what were you thinking? How could you, didn't, didn't you know that broke my heart? Didn't you know that made me very, 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 very upset? Friends, that moment's not coming. He will rejoice over you. Your life will be celebrated. You will be given a new name. And everything that Christ has hidden will be revealed. You know, Master Zeman taught me a lot of things. He taught a lot of classes and I took a lot from him. And most of them I remember. It's the Greek stuff I forget. The other stuff I remember, I remember because I kept using it. You know, he taught me a lot of my literature classes, and I went to become an English teacher, and then I taught other things, but I would, you know, tutor things, or I would keep reading, or I would keep writing, and it just kept being a part of my daily life, and so it lingered, and it stayed. When it comes down to it, living the Christian life is simply a matter of where we set our minds. Every waking moment, we have a choice about where and on what we will set our minds. And that is something we are free to do. The primary practice of living as a Christian boils down to what we think about, what we dwell on, what values we keep at the front of our minds, what truths or lies we have in our consciousness. If you want to live into who you already are, set your mind and your hearts on Christ. Seek him because you want him. 
Make him your magnificent obsession. Make him the object of your desire. Anchor your hope in him. Let me pray. God, you are more precious than silver. You are more beautiful than diamonds. And all that I desire is in you. God, I pray that that would inhabit our minds and our hearts. And as we leave this place, we would see how to live this out. God, you would reveal to us the times and those moments where we can get into you and we can spend time with you and we can devote ourselves to you, Father. Show us the value in that. Let us not leave this place and just hope that things change, but God, push us and draw us into you. Help us to set our minds and seek after you. Pray this in your name. Amen.